Now I know that lots of sermons end up being a many hundred, if not thousand word attempt to explain what a particular holiday means. So I've thought of a new way of doing this. I'm going to choose one joke that will convey the entirety of the meaning of this sermon. And here it is. An elderly man, Moshe, was driving down the 401 when his phone rings. It's his wife, Sadie, and she's frantic, warning him, Moshe, I just heard on the news that there's a car driving on the wrong way in the 401. Please be careful. And he turns and says, Sadie, it's not just one car. It's hundreds of them. <laughs> Which says that we are often the last people to know that we were heading in the wrong direction. And if you think the sermon's over, you're wrong. So it's been a year, and we are again reminded how life moves quickly past us, and that the grand illusions that we've been sold about the car, the plane, the laptop, and the iPhone, that it will save you more time. And that by saving time, that you'll then have more time that you inevitably end up by using in a car or a plane or on your phone. But Judaism has no interest, no plan in saving you time. In fact, Judaism makes enormous demands on time. When you wake up, you pray, the demand to study, the need to prepare for Shabbat and the holidays. So Judaism is not interested in saving you time because Judaism wants to sanctify your time. I don't know anyone who thinks back in their life and says, you know, I wish I hadn't spent so much time in shul. Because the time here is different from the time you spend out there. And here is sacred time. This is perhaps the one place in your world, with the exception of the shower, where you have the privilege of not being controlled by your phone. It is here that you can listen and think and learn and experience and feel something that you are hard-pressed to feel anywhere outside of these walls. So when the Israelites are on the cusp of leaving Egypt, God doesn't tell them how to build their camps, and God doesn't tell them how to survive in an inhospitable desert. What God commands our ancestors to do is to make a calendar. Because as slaves, they had no time of their own. And as they are about to leave, God tells them that I will give you the greatest of gifts, which is understanding that the cry of a child needs to be heard. <laughs> it's not me. I hope. <laughs> that as they're about to leave Egypt, God says to them that I will give you the greatest of gifts which will be understanding that all of us have a limited time on this earth and therefore we should never live without a sacred moment. That these sacred moments are, yes, found in prayer and study. They're found with family and loving connections. In short, Judaism sees sacred moments not as acts given to God, but that gifts that we give to ourselves. This past year, at a visit 
to Yad Vashem, I came away realizing that Yad Vashem is not a museum. Yad Vashem is a question, which is the same question asked on the sidewalks of Berlin that bear the name plaques of the people who used to live in those homes. It is asked inside every empty synagogue of Europe. How did a society of music and law and culture, a land of good people, become a place where people are murdered? And this, my friends, is no small question, which is an introduction saying that we have a lot to talk about. Now, before the Ayala days, I went to our president, Steve Kelman, and I said to him, I need more time. I need you to speak shorter, and I promise I'll talk about the shul. Now, I've never done that before, but there's something important that has to be said, and I need more time, and I need your attention. I'm going to say it straight. You might think this sermon is about Donald Trump, but you're wrong. I don't want you to be confused. This sermon is about our moment, and he is a part of it, just as we are. A quick history lesson shows us that the world that we live in is a byproduct of three of the bloodiest and horrific butcheries in all of human history. You know, people, people often remark on the cost of human life through religious conflicts. But religious conflicts can compare to what secular societies have done to one another. In 1918, more than 41 million people died in the First World War. The Stalinist purges of the 30 starved and murdered more than 20 million people. By the end of the Second World War, more than 80 million people were dead, and even some of them were buried. Or look at it this way. In the span of 35 years, 141 million people died because of war. And what was left of the democratic world promised to learn something from that. A country's committed to banding together in order to support and further basic human rights, the protection of equality, and the fundamentals of social liberal democracy. They committed that they would go to war never again for territory or for resources or wealth, but to protect and ensure human life. These banded countries, like the United States and Canada, Britain and Western Europe, they would even go so far as to forego some of their own wealth to strengthen their mutual commitments to these values and to each other. And why would they do that? Because in one generation, the survivors had seen the unleashing of our worst demons. So they built things like NATO and NORAD and the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, the United Nations and the Marshall Plan, hoping that it would lead from what we must never go back to. And surveying this past year, the efforts of the 75 years past is unraveling. In its wake, the rise of nationalistic and autocratic leaders in Hungary and Turkey and Poland and Italy and the rise of strongman politics, Brexit, the deepening of Russian financial and cyber interference in American, Canadian and European elections, the, yes, the election of Donald Trump, the diminishing of facts and honesty in our national conversations, of leaders that fan fears that the wrong people will end up destroying the countries we live in, 
and that only the right people can save and protect us. And it just happens to be that those right people are just like them. And this isn't to say that uncontrolled immigration isn't a threat. It is. People should only be welcome here if they're prepared to accept the basic conditions and values of what makes Canada, Canada. But throughout the world, in place of sound immigration policy is the demonizing of categories of people. In Italy, they say their problems are from the gypsies. In Russia and Ukraine, it's the media, the Western bankers, and homosexuals. And if you're wondering when it will be the Jews, you won't be left in suspense because media and bankers and homosexuals are cultural code for Jews. And here, closer to home, we look at both poles of the Western political spectrum, and they both contain a antipathy and hatred of either Jews or Jewish causes, the likes that hasn't been seen in three generations. The progressive left that populates the Labour Party in Britain and the progressive liberal wings of the Democratic Party in the States and here is filled with anti-Semitic and anti-Zionistic vitriol. Right-wing politics is increasingly filled with racial definitions of what a citizen is. This message has filtered into mainstream Republican language that echo the sentiments of white nationalist claims that America is at risk and Europe is at risk because the nation is growing more diverse, less white, more mixed, not only in America. This mirrors the rise of natives, native populist parties in places like Norway and Sweden. The argument goes stronger, realizing that Viktor Orban, Recep Erdogan, Andrei Babish, Giuseppe Conte, Donald Trump are where they are because a section of white Christians feel threatened. So this past winter, standing in front of cell number 37 in Dachau, I was reminded that the danger of an autocracy is not in the people who believe in the autocrat. The danger is in the good people who get sucked into following. Dachau was not only a concentration camp that murdered Jews, Dachau had prisons for Germans who refused notification. Cell number 37 held the German pastor, Martin Niemöller, whose crime that led him to be in prison was in saying these words in a sermon. First they came for the socialists, and I didn't speak out, he said, because I'm not a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I'm not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I'm not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. The Jewish people, Ben-Gurion said, are always the victim of national hatreds. We are always the victim wherever there is suppression and the denial of freedom. As Jews, we understand the words of the philosopher Hannah Arendt who said, where there is no truth, anything becomes possible. The disappearance of honesty and facts the pitting of classes and races against one another reminds us that historically the Jews are almost always 
the most final collateral damage in a world of them and us. So here we now. We are three generations removed from a war that shaped the world we lived in. For Jews, that war was a realization that modern society has an ability to murder on a scale never before seen. But on a wider level, that war's aftermath is a world made by America's commitment to the rule of law, of science and fact, on the grouping of countries that share this commitment. But now Canada is a national security risk and our steel is tariffed. France is told to lead NATO. Germany is warned that American troops might be pulled out. Russia, China, and North Korea are coddled. There was a time that America was, in the words of John F. Kennedy, prepared to pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival of liberty. And on this Rosh Hashanah, we must ask if that, if that America exists anymore. And if it doesn't, what does it mean to us? Was the French philosopher Gide right when he said that we must repeat truths because people forget them? So in survey after survey of the Western world, we find that younger generations now place living in a democratic society at the bottom of their concerns. The numbers run like this. In the 1950s, two-thirds of Americans believed democracy was worth fighting for. Today, it is a third. In the 1950s, 6% of affluent, affluent Americans believed in supporting army rule domestically. Today, it is 35%. There are fellow citizens of this country who look at our system of economy and government and see it broken without realizing just how much worse it could be. Forgotten is without the commitment to defend liberty for all that life and happiness for some will come quickly to an end. And can we mention the word some and assume that it will not be me or you? So maybe you're saying to yourself, you know what, Rabbi? That was then and this is now. Maybe you're saying Heraclitus was right, that no person dips their foot into the same drop of water, that time is ever flowing forward, and the past is precisely that, it's just the past. Yes, maybe you'd be right. But maybe there's another scenario. The scenario of slowly turning the water warmer to boil the frog, where the changes seem slow, where our life seemingly continues as it always has, where our comforts for now are what they have always been, that good people are around us, but remember that a bad idea is more dangerous than bad people because even good people get sucked into bad ideas. When the Israelites left Egypt, the gift that God gave to them and to you was the mitzvah of asking what this moment is telling us. We are asked this individually and collectively. The lessons of this question have been carried for thousands of years over deserts and mountains, in the mouths of the thirsty and the hungry, held by people enjoying success and those fleeing tragedy and destruction. 
And I stand here on this morning declaring that I am not a prophet. I am not predicting. I only seek wisdom in what I see. And I sense an axial moment where the world is tipping from one thing to another. And I see a world where our better angels may be left behind. But my message to you is not a message of fear. You know me better than that, my friends. This morning, I come to you with a message of faith. According to Jewish law, the shofar can be made of the horn of any kosher animal. The shofar can be adorned with any gilding or decoration on the outside. But it must always be pointed upwards to heaven. Which is to say that the persistence of the Jews is built on the very thing that you need to live hopefully and lovingly and courageously. To live Jewishly is to believe in the fact of the possible, that all is possible, even if things seem impossible. To be Jewish, in the words of Fackenheim, to be Jewish is to be courageous. This year, I ask that you give that to yourself and your families. Light your Shabbat candles. Have a challah on your table on Friday night. Study your faith. The survivor Applefold said that we don't see the world as it is, but as we are. And if that is true, and I believe it is, then let us be the very best of who we are. I believe days may be coming when we may need this strength. Because the assumption that things will always be as they are is a dangerous one. And I believe that we are in a moment of change. If the world order, if the world order that we have come to know and succeed in is changing, it wouldn't be the first time. Highness saw it in Germany in the late 1800s when books were being burned in front of the Berlin Opera and he prophesied that where books are burned, eventually people will be too. It was those book burnings that inspired Herzl as the Austrian-Hungarian Empire was collapsing to dream an impossible dream. Jabotinsky later would write that it was not enough to dream, that we ourselves would have to build. And later on, when Einstein was told that he would not be expelled from the College of German Scientists because he would be declared an honorary Aryan, Einstein told them to go to hell and he resigned. But my childhood was punctuated by two great Jewish moments. The raid on Entebbe and the freeing of Soviet Jewry. Entebbe's message was that Jews could still be victims, but there would be no more Jewish victimhood. And the message of the Soviet Jewish resistance is seen in one of its leaders, a man named Anatoly Sharansky, or Natan Sharansky. Sharansky spent seven years in a Soviet prison for the crime of organized Zionist meetings. And he said the only thing that kept him alive was a book of Psalms his wife had given him. Sharansky was by no means an observant man, but he worked every day at reading Hebrew. One winter's day, he was dragged out of his cell. The guards told him today was his day to die. Blindfolded, he was put in the car, and Sharansky would say that he was at peace. The car then came to a stop. The door was open. He was pulled out, and the blindfold was removed. And there he was, 
standing on a snow-carved tarmac in front of a plane, the plane that was to bring him to the state of Israel. The KGB officer pushed him and said, walk in a straight line to the plane, no games. So Sharansky stepped forward and walked, but not straight, but in a zigzag to the plane. Sharansky would later say it was one of the most Jewish moments of his life. My friends, take pride that you are part of a people that refuses to walk a straight line. This year, let us be, as the Zionists predicted when they came to Israel, Libanot Ulihibanot, that we will build, and in turn, we will never cease from being built. May you all be blessed for a sweet and good year to us and the entire people of Israel. Shana Tovah.